This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Forget your troubles. Happy day. Come on, get happy. I hear again a chance. All our cares above are clear. Shout hallelujah. So let's sing a song. Come on, get happy. Cheer again. Happy days are here again. The sun is shining together. Come on, get happy. Shout it now. There's no way who can tower it now. Shout hallelujah. So let's tell the world and just get happy about it now. Happy days are here again We're heading across the river Soon your cares will all be gone There'll be no more From now on From now on Garland and Barbara Streisand there on this 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riot with Happy Days Are Here Again. And thanks to all those activists over the generations who have enabled the LGBTIQ rights we have today. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we speak with intersex community rights campaigner Morgan Carpenter. We also speak with Jean Lim from Archers about their research about gay community discrimination towards Asian-born queer men. And at 4.30, MV presents the third episode of QR code focusing on neuroqueerism. You're listening to 3CR Radio. And of course, intersex human rights have gained momentum with activists campaigning strongly for gender self-determination rights, including the banning of forced gender assignment surgery on infants. On the line, we have Morgan Carpenter from Intersex Human Rights Australia. Morgan, welcome back to 3CR. Hello, thank you for the invitation to be here. It's always a great pleasure to have you on the show. Morgan, what legislation does the Victorian government need to pass as a priority to ensure the self-determination rights of intersex people in Victoria? Oh, that's such a good question. That's a good place to start. Thank you. Um, I mean, the intersex human rights movement began in in the 1990s with with a call for self-determination about medical treatment because Listeners, you might not be aware. I mean, intersex people are born with sex characteristics that don't fit medical norms for female or male bodies. 
and we can experience human rights violations, harmful medical practices, forced or coercive medical treatment before we're old enough to express an identity with any agency uh, and before we're able to consent ourselves to, to that kind of treatment. Um, and that treat- those treatments are known to have many different health issues, including what the clinicians themselves describe as particular concern regarding post-surgical sexual function and sensation, uh, and also the risk sometimes of, of uh, incorrect gender assignment. And it's important to say as well, those interventions can happen at any time from infancy to, to puberty and later, uh, and increasingly because some of the insect variations are genetic, we're seeing prenatal or, or even uh, preconception screening as well. So, so this is the issue that we were founded to, to address. And it's an area where the state government could legislate very quickly to ensure that people with intersex variations are not subjected to deferrable medical interventions that are intended to modify our sex characteristics. So that's the key piece of legislation that we want. And of course, that's not the legislation that's currently before Parliament. Yes. What is Intersex Human Rights Australia's response to the Victorian government's births, deaths and marriages amendment bill that will enable people to select their gender on their birth certificate without undergoing organ surgery? Yeah. um, Okay. A couple of things here. I think um, in principle, we support the bill. However, we have very serious concerns about the way in which it's being talked about in the media, um, including, including the ways that the Attorney General has introduced the bill um, and the way that people, journalists and others, are talking about this. I mean, I've talked about the kind of the, the key human rights violations in such people face, which include forced and coercive medical interventions, often before we have agency to, identify, to express an identity. When we do express an identity, it turns out that most intersex people are going to identify with sex assigned at birth. And very many intersex people will, when they're old enough, will be heterosexual. So an assumption in the media that intersex people need new birth certificates is a bit of a problem where most intersex people have no intention of changing birth certificates. So I think a lot of the media discussion hasn't really respected the diversity of intersex people. And we've also seen a statement by um, the Attorney General that says, if I can have a look at it, what she said was, there's a quotation, everyone deserves a birth certificate that reflects their identity, a true identity. And the current surgery requirement sends a painful and false message that there is something wrong with being transgender, diverse or intersex that needs to be fixed. So, of course, the, the key times when intersex people face medical interventions with language like fixing us and this idea that we're wrong is not addressed by this bill. Um, and I know that, that, that um, I've had some discussions with the Attorney General's office to talk about these issues and, and, and those concerns that have been acknowledged, which is very kind and generous. But we are still left then with, with a situation where most people out there don't understand those issues and actually have been educated through the media in recent weeks 
into this belief that being intersex has a lot to do with being transgender. And of course, some intersex people are transgender, and transgender people need human rights, need their human rights respected. But we don't get the issues affecting intersex people addressed if people don't understand who we are. It sounds like uh, the Attorney General Jill Hennessy now has a greater understanding of the appropriate language to use. Was that the feeling that you got after talking to her office? Well, I, I hope that uh, that's the case. But, it, but even more importantly, I hope that, that her office understands that the key human rights issues that we face and will be supportive of work to protect our actual human rights, including freedom from uh, harmful practices, forced and coercive medical practices, as they actually happen. Where is dialogue at between the Victorian government and the intersex community regarding future legislation and policies that need to be enacted by government? Okay, that's also a really good question. And and, um, I think there is a lot of work going into considering what next steps there might be. In in recent months, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services has published a background paper on the health and human rights of intersex people. Um, An era warmly welcomes that document. However, we we do have concerns about some of the content. And in particular, there's reference to some, in our view, very flawed ethical guidelines that were published in 2013 by by the state government. Uh, And at that time, in 2013, we, we raised concerns about evidence of implementation and evidence of actual practices. And those issues haven't yet been addressed or even considered in detail. So I hope that, you know, our concerns with those ethical guidelines and also then concerns with omissions and other concerns with this new background paper will be addressed in coming months. I don't think anybody at this point has a very clear idea of what the next steps are. Um, and thankfully, um, I know that the, uh, the Victorian government is consulting, not only with clinicians, as they always have done, but also with some very skilled and experienced intersex advocates and, and people with lived experience. It sounds like the government's playing catch-up on intersex rights when those guidelines were written in 2013. There's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. Yeah, there is. But, I mean, we, we knew the issues back then. I think in some ways uh, we've had to collaboratively work with institutions to actually educate people on what those issues are. Uh, it's a long, slow process. And I think that, that you know, often it's an assumption that LGBTI people are all the same um, and that, you know, but our actual human rights situation, the state of our movement and the kind of specific human rights violations we face that can be all be very different. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, sometimes I do feel like we're playing catch-up it's also had an impact on resourcing as well, because there are, there are, as I understand it, no people paid to work full-time in policy development, systemic advocacy or peer support in Australia. Any undertakings from the Victorian government to explore providing adequate funding to assist the intersex community? I, I know that um, they've announced some, uh, some grants very recently whether or not those offer any potential for people to be employed and have any kind of, you know, medium-term, long-term, non-precarious existence as as employees remains to be seen. 
hopefully that will happen. Um, I mean, this is not just an issue for the Victorian government, it's an issue for many institutions to consider. And I hope that people involved in, in, in funding, you know, charities, NGOs, uh, whether they're LGBTI or not, uh, might listen to this. I hope that you can come and talk with intersectoral organisations about how we can better support our community through paid staffing. Morgan, that segues beautifully into the next question, which is what support can listeners give the intersex community in its campaigns for greater human rights? Oh, hey, thank you. That's a really great question to to, to us to um, maybe end on, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, we are so... We have the expertise. We, we have, in, in our community, we have people with bioethics experience, law, community development, policy development, a whole range of different, and, and peer support as well, psychology, social work. But, but we don't have the resources to ensure that people don't burn out when people deliver those services. So, so this is a key area, a key call for support. But also, we're conscious very much of a history where the kinds of human rights violations that intersex people face have not been talked about. And in some ways, there's, there's disbelief that, that, that infants, children, and adolescents can still be faced with forced or coercive medical interventions. So I, th- I think in some ways that that's been supported by a lack of transparency, you know, which we can see also in, in, in this recent health and wellbeing paper about what actually is going on. But we're also aware of, of critical institutions that have made statements that, that are not very widely reported and should be. So, so please think about following the uh, Infection Rights Australia social media. I, I think about following people in Australia who are working in this field uh, and share what we what we say. You know, share our, our videos and our stories and our, and our commentary on recent events or current events um, so that people can become more aware. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Much appreciated. Um, thank you again for the invitation. I really, really appreciate it. Anytime. Cheers. Thank you. Morgan Carpenter there from Intersex Human Rights Australia. It's a quarter past four. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and here's Custard.
busted there, Umalay, 17 after 41, in your face on 3CR with James. I am joined by Jean Lim, doing research for the Australian Centre for Sex, Health and Society, focusing on discrimination experienced by Asian-born queer men in Australia's gay community. Welcome to 3CR, Jean. Hey, glad to be here. What led you to undertake this research? Um, so I think we, as with a lot of people who work in this in this field, I think personal experience was definitely a driver and sort of um, the experiences of uh, people who have similar kind of backgrounds to myself. That was, yeah, that was sort of a very powerful impetus to understand, you know, why these experiences are the way they are. And I imagine the experiences are pretty intense and evident in the online world in particular with dating apps and sex apps. Yeah, so that has been, I mean, we've written... Um, tons of think pieces about this and she's done heaps of research and you know obviously it isn't great dating in general as a person of color no matter your gender or sexuality I, so you know so, I, so I've heard <laughs> So tell us about some of the experiences online that you may have had or people that you right. know may have had yeah well, I think a lot of times, uh, especially these days, you know, a lot of it is just the silent treatment. Like you get a lot of that. And this is something that sort of apparently transcends, again, boundaries of uh, sexuality and gender. Um, and a lot of times, you know, you a lot of times people like myself, we we may not specifically use dating applications necessarily to for sex or for intimacy, you know. But regardless, that avenue is a lot less available to us because just because of the way that people tend to treat, you know, uh, people of color on dating applications and stuff. So you'll get things like outright, um, outright sort of racial vilification. I mean, if I had a nickel for every time that I woke up to messages that were unsolicited and sort of unprovoked uh, that attacked me for my race, I would probably have about 10 nickels. But the point is that it's a pretty common experience. Yeah, and that makes you, I guess, very, that makes you sort of very apprehensive about online dating in general. And I know a lot of people that have sort of just cut that out entirely out of their lives. Um, But of course, that means they then lose, you know, what is, what has become a very important sort of lifeline to uh, other people in the queer community. So one of the symptoms of discrimination is exclusion. Yeah, definitely. Well, a lot of times these days it's more self-imposed than it is um, than it is sort of signs on a gay bar that say no Asians, no Blacks, no Latinas, things like that. Um, a lot of times now, you know, it's sort of the idea that, well, let's put it this way. One of my friends told me, why do I want to spend, you know, $20 on a cover charge just to go to a bar and be ignored by everyone there. So, but, you know, obviously this extends into other things like political um, participation. If people don't feel like they're part of the LGBT community, LGBTIQ community, you know, they're less likely to sort of cast their lot in with the community, if you understand what I mean. So you were talking before about unsolicited messages. So are you right. saying that some people just see a, say, for instance, yeah. a gay Asian man's profile and yeah. they will just send them a, a, a hateful oh. message? Yeah. It, it, I, the, the rationale behind this alludes me to this day, but it, it's not as often as, say, people that are more subtle with 
their racism, but you do get, but these are sort of the ones that kind of stick out in your mind, where people, yeah, just for no rhyme or reason, they'll sort of uh, attack you on the basis of your race, tell you to go back from where you came from. You might even be born here, but, you know, that apparently doesn't really matter to them. And I think what it is is is, is a lot of people, a lot of, um, and of course, these are, like white gay men. Let's not be. It's not a diverse. It's not a diverse group of people that are sending these messages. There isn't like a short Chinese lady that's attacking me for being a gay, gay male on uh, on a dating profiles. I frankly am not interested in why they do this. You know, like well, it's racist for one. Well, racism is inherently uh, is inherently an emotional response to difference. I'm not like we can we can opine we can philosophize to the moon and back about why racists do the things that they do but i'm fundamentally not interested in people that are uh are sort of uncritical of the of their own biases and prejudices prejudices i'm more interested in you know understanding how my asian brothers and sisters um experience this kind of exclusion and more importantly what they do uh to what they do to resist that and how we can support them in that resistance. Yeah, resistance is, is a fascinating technique yeah. and response and it's, it's very much an activist approach, isn't it? Regardless yeah. of whether or not it's intended to be activist. So. You don't think so? I don't think so. I think resistance can be something really, can be something that is really personal. Like deciding, you know, very actively deciding to decolonize your own kind of sexual desires, which is an undertaking that I've seen a lot of you know, a- queer Asian people struggle with. Explain and that to us, decolonizing sexual desires. So, you know, like pe- when you, when queer people, you know, when we grow, when we grow up and around um, queer media, like the faces and bodies that we see are predominantly white, you know, and that can have a very lasting sort of implication for someone's sexual desires. And that is inherent, that can be inherently very racist and, uh, certainly for myself and a lot of other people that are in my pos- and that were in my position, that can be a very um, traumatic experience. You know, not desiring yourself. I think there was uh, I can't remember who the author was, but it was basically being invisible in your own desire, and that process of trying to undo that, undo those sort of problematic racialized preferences. That is a huge quest. You know that a lot of people aren't taking and that I think is a very profound instance of you know individual resistance that doesn't necessarily have to take place on the picket line or in a uh, protest so that must have a huge impact on people's mental health if they're Definitely. constantly having to, to go through those processes in response Definitely. to racism and you know the isolation and alienation that can stem from Definitely. that yeah and I think that's also why you see like a lot of research coming out now that you know, it has identified a lot of uh, queer men of color uh, as being more vulnerable to specific kinds of conditions like body image disorders, you know, eating disorders, mood disorders, anxiety, depression, things like that. And that's a very human response to being systematically and repeatedly excluded in that fashion. It's hard to believe that the last yeah. time there was research done in Australia on this topic was in 2006, from, uh, I think. 2008, 2008. From, a, from, the, from a sort of, um, 
from the viewpoint of from a qualitative viewpoint from the viewpoint of asian men themselves so there's since been a lot of studies that have been undertaken but they've i feel they've sort of you know uh il- they've sort of excluded the voices of these men themselves and i understand that that can be very difficult for uh for a researcher you know to tap into a community that they're not a part of you know there's this reluctance to share your experiences with someone who might not understand it who might question it who might challenge you on your own experience you know so i think it is like from what my participants have told me anyway um it is very refreshing and comforting for them to see a face that looks like theirs you know sharing experiences sharing their experiences with that can be a really you know therapeutic and cathartic experience for these people so it sounds like there's a perception in the academic world and also more broadly that this issue of discrimination towards uh, mm. queer Asian-born men is done and dusted in Australia, which, of course, clearly well, it's not. Yeah, and I think a lot of the research tends to sort of think of it as, you know, think of the consequences of this as bad fields, <laughs> to put it in a more colloquial term. You know, people tend to think that, oh, you know, like, you feel bad and that's it. But no, it's not. It's things like lost opportunities, you know, lost social connections, lost connections to community, you know, on top of all these other subjective uh, factors that really make racism, you know, a factor that transcends just subjective experience. You know, it's not just that I feel bad when someone throws an ethnic slur in my face. It's also that, you know, I then feel like I can't be a part of a community that is very overwhelmingly white. Tell us about your research. I know you're looking for participants. How (laughs) can people get involved and what is involved? So I'm currently uh, doing my PhD project at Monash and I'm looking for Asian men for sex with men or gay, bi, pan, queer, you know, however you identify. I'm looking to, uh, to hear from you about your... Uh, experiences of sexual racism, you know, uh, and I think the twit your the three CR Twitter account is going to buzz out a poster. Yeah, we've the done pro- that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that would be on the Twitter account, and then you know there are all the contact details there, and I think it'd be really great to listen, you know, to have a ver- have a greater diversity of voices that are you know that are not just East Asian. Um, so that's the thing that I've also been been attempting to do with my project is to broaden, you know, the category, like this category that we so often think of as people from East Asian sort of backgrounds and including people that are Southeast Asian, you know, South Asian. These people tend to kind of get pushed to the side uh, in a lot of research around a- Asian identities and things like that. So, yeah. Jim, I'll have to get you back on the show when you've finished the research. Oh, I'd love to come back. Thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Thanks for having me. I'm out of here. Taking us out is Spider Bait with Buy Me a Pony, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.